Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. I'm really thrilled to welcome um, a special guest today, Melissa Daniels Rauterkus. So thank you so much, Melissa, for joining me today on the Think About It podcast. Thanks for having me. So Melissa, um, I thought I would love to have a conversation about James Weldon Johnson's novel, The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, which is, as I understand, the first um, novel by African-American written in the, from the perspective of the I, sort of the first person singular. Uh, and it was published anonymously first, sort of people understood it first to be a true account of a black man who passed for white in the language we may use at that time. But before we get to that book, I really want to just say, first of all, why I wanted to speak to you, because I love your book. So you have a study of African-American literature sort of from the 1870s until sort of 1910s or something like that. And I just want to give you a kind of recognition. This book is called Afro-Realisms and the Romances of Race, Rethinking Blackness in the African-American Novel, where the way I understand from the book, you wanted to show that the genre of romance can be used to actually interrogate identity, including racial identity in this country. And it's not a kind of pretty genre that's used to sort of whitewash or cover over social reality in our country. Yes, yes. That's a, that's a great way to put it. Um, you know, the way I was um, taught African-American literature, the romance had a lot of negative baggage associated with it as the genre. Um, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, um, you had romancers in the style of Harriet Beecher Stowe and um, Thomas Dixon and Thomas Nelson Page 
and you know the romance was used to romanticize slavery in a way and to um and to you know perpetuate the you know slavery as paternalism or the lost cause and um and i wanted to um to kind of get away from that I also think though, in terms of gender, that the romance also has had, um, you know, this kind of negative connotation. I'm thinking about um, Jane Tompkins's book, Sensational Designs, um, as a book, one of the first critical works, I think, that really um, challenged the view of the romance as this like, you know, vapid genre um, that was didactic or, you know, um, somehow reflective of the, um, the work of scribbling women, you know, um, mm -hmm. that these, these novels actually did important social and political work. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think in some respects, um, I see myself as doing something similar here, where I, um, I want to locate African American writing um, you know, in a, a longer American literary history that, um, you know, as a body of writing that has these impulses both towards romance and realism, um, mm -hmm. that it's that blend that is for me the, the hallmark of African-American writing. And your focus is on, let's say, post-Civil War, so sort of reconstruction, this era which you've described kind of then nadir the low point in African-American existence in this country after the Civil War, after emancipation, and then sort of 1770s to 1910s. And before that, we have, of course, we have writing by African-Americans, we have sort of pioneers, and then we have the genre of the autobiography, sort of the autobiography, especially of former slaves, which becomes a really driving force in public awareness. But your focus is on a point that isn't studied or taught as much because you go from these, to be honest, it's just my own kind of education, which is really flawed in this respect, but I was taught the big autobiographies of ex-slaves. And then it goes kind of to the early Harlem Renaissance, and then you go to the Harlem Renaissance and the civil rights movement. And then this moment that you actually focus on, I didn't really know that much about, and I'm not by any means an expert. But can you say something why you looked at this period, these 50 years or so from 1870 to 1910 or 20? Yes, thank you for that. Um, you know, I agree with you. Um, I, I think that for many of us in literary and cultural studies, um, we are given um, a paradigm of um, 19th century literary history that really ignores this period. And then I would say within African-American literary studies, the really big marquee moments um, are the antebellum period, the Harlem Renaissance, and then the civil rights movement, and then the black arts movement. Mm -hmm. And you know, this period known as the Nader is this really under-theorized, under-assessed period it's a period that when we do talk about it, we talk about it in very pejorative ways. You know, um, the term nadir um, is, a, is a prime example of that, right? It's a low point. Um, right. 
in some respects, um, that neologism is, is, is accurate in that um, it comes from the historian Rafer Logan, um, who, who dubbed this period the nadir because it represented the lowest moment in American race relations. But when we actually look at the literature and we look at the, the, um, the things that were happening in black political life, it, it's not just a period of political setback. It's a period where African-Americans are creating their own civic organizations. They are engaging in activism. You know, Hiram Revels is the first black um, senator from the state of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there, there are these really amazing things that happen in the way of black self-empowerment. And that's a narrative that, um, that is lost to us. Um, so I wanted to recuperate um, a sense of the aesthetic innovativeness, the, you know, the experimentation that's happening with African-American writing at this time. Mm -hmm. um, and I also wanted to speak to the, um, the political work um, that was being done in the way of um, civil rights and black empowerment. The, one of the books you look at is uh, Francis Hopper's novel, Ayola Leroy, which is, I think, 1880s or 1890s, a late novel. And early, she's, 90s. early 90s. And she's known, she's the vanguard of sort of the suffrage movement. She's fighting for the vote. She's a black woman activist. She's a household name, publishes um, short stories, collections of poems that are really popular. And sort of, she has this huge presence in political life as an activist, but we consider an activist, as a woman who's debating with Frederick Douglass and people to say like the women's vote is actually the African-American vote. Those are connected. As we know, women will not get the vote uh, until much later. And so this novel is a novel that when you think of how it has been taught or looked at, what is it usually considered to do? Sort of, it's a woman writing a novel about a woman's fate, right? <laughs> For that, I think, you know, we, we have to turn to um, that, um, you know, 1940s generation of African-American literary critics, um, you know, Sterling Brown, um, Arthur P. Davis, Ulysses Lee, um, you know, in their um, acclaimed work, The Negro Caravan, they, um, they viewed Harper's novel, Iola Leroy, as well as writings by Charles Chestnut as, um, as being devoid of any real political value. You know, they saw them as feeble, sentimental romances, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that critique became the primary means of interpreting the novel for a really long time. Um, I think that um, work like Jane Tompkins's Sensational Designs, I'm thinking of a lot of the criticism done by black women scholars like Deborah McDowell and um, Frances Smith Foster um, and Nellie McKay and Gabrielle Foreman, um, even Richard Yarbrough. I, I think that the work that they did on Black women's writing um, in the 80s and in the 90s really recuperated the, the lost and kind of under-assessed 
political value of, um, of the work. For me, um, for me, a critical work that I think really made that clear um, is Claudia Tate's uh, book, um, Domestic Allegories of Political Desire. If you can specify something, this generation of critics who are really actually in the 40s, let's say, starting to center African-American writing into the canon. Actually, I looked at the Norton Anthology of American Literature in 1967, which is the 10th edition, does not include one text by an African-American writer in 1967. And they actually start the Norton Anthology saying, this widely praised anthology used by colleagues across the nation. Wow. So this is 1967. So you're saying this first generation is the tension here that they're seeing Ayola Leroy and novels like that as not realist enough, not actually engaging with the political life. There's sort of romance for them. It's gendered. It's about the interior life of women. Yeah. So it doesn't have any. And this is so interesting because today we probably through the work of the women, Nellie McKay and critics like that, we would think actually that is part of also social and political reality. Yes, yes. So it's kind of this tension you want to undo between realism as doing the work that African-American literature is supposed to do. There's a kind of demand placed on it. It's supposed to also have a social message. Absolutely. Right? Which, is, which is a bit of a double bind also because other people uh, can write whatever they want. They don't have this obligation to deliver this kind of so social lesson or insight, right? Absolutely. That is perfectly put. Absolutely. And I find that so marginalizing and so limiting. Um, you know, um, I really do. Um, I, I, I appreciate um, early African-American novels for their complexity, because I think even in slave narratives, we see that genre bending, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, we see how widely read these, um, you know, these early African-American authors were and their, um, their ability to kind of have these intertextual um, conversations with other works or to kind of signal their awareness of Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? I mean, everybody read Uncle Tom's Cabin and many <laughs> African-American writers responded to it. Um, and so um, I see the early African-American novel as really being a polygeneric work, you know, a work that is um, doing the important mimetic work of reflecting material conditions, but also using the romance as a vehicle to imagine something else, right? Mm -hmm. Um, or to or to kind of think outside of the traditional ways that you know race has historically been defined. And can you say something about those novels? Actually, also they're using a probably the dominant genre that actually sells and people read. And so, so Uncle Tom's Cabin, of course, is the probably second bestseller in America. And as you say, a lot of African American writers are responding to that book. So I think the only piece of fiction that Frederick Douglass published was The Heroic Slave, it sort of count, wants to counter this idea of the slaves as passive. But can you say something, who do they want to reach? Who do these writers, like who is Frances Harper writing for, if she's a household name? I think, I think Frances Harper is writing to white women, but I also <laughs> think that she is 
writing to the race. And um, like other novels published at that time, you know, um, in this kind of didactic educational way, like these are, these are the ways that we can uplift the race, you know, um, mm -hmm. it's civics, it's education, um, it's having a political consciousness, um, it's marrying within the race, right? I mean, the novel kind of ends with this, affirma this affirmation of um, intra-group identity um, and, and not, you know, availing oneself of the opportunity to, um, to pass outside of the race, which is with, you know, what many um, talented 10th, um, light-skinned African-Americans, you know, we're doing. So, Can you, um, to oh, be, she's writing, no, 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 she's, it's really interesting, she's writing to white women, and also women have always been the kind of book-reading public, in a way, which is interesting, that there's a huge dimension, sort of, when we think about the big novels in the 19th century, so women are buying these novels, reading these novels, and it's shaping and what does she, when she ends the book, that she stays within the race? And as you're saying, there are many other stories where someone says the conditions are so unfair and unequal that it's not my failure to actually choose a better option for my life and my children, which would be, which is where James Walden Johnson is going to end up in his book yeah. in a way. But so what, is, what, do, what do white women make of this book, do you think, of these kinds of romances? I think that there, there are always multiple readings of a book, right? And so the, the straight reading is that this is a nice domestic novel <laughs> about, um, you know, the, the, the horrors of racism in America. You know, this, this is a nice domestic plot that might compel me to, um, to feel differently about Black people and their struggle. Um, but I also think that insofar as she's writing to Black people, um, she is communicating middle-class ideas about the value of marriage, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Communicating ideas. And here's where the book, I think, is actually at its most progressive, um, challenging traditional gender roles. I mean, mm -hmm. The, the most powerful people in the novel are women. You know, um, it's Lucille Delaney who is inspired by Martin Delaney, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So so Harper- and you, you very, Tell us one thing, and who is Martin Delaney here? So just give our, so, our listeners a <laughs> So Keep one it. of the, the most important African-American activists of the 19th century, um, who um, who published Blake in the 1850s? Um, so mm -hmm. it's considered one of the you know early contributors to the African American novel. Also a book book that you know we can locate in that speculative tradition. Right. Yeah. So. And Delaney is a key figure with Douglas. So he writes in the leading newspapers. He becomes one of the advocates for leaving in America, actually tries to set up a colony maybe in, in West Africa. But so she's modeling her female protagonist on this really incredibly larger than life uh, male political figure, right? Yes, yes. So it's giving people, so you're saying the romance actually gives us much more than we would 
thing. It's not just a nice domestic story about women and their issues, but it's actually a key, a key to understanding American society at that time. Yes, the, the romances um, are national literature's earliest vocabulary for understanding or thinking through American identity, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so in the hands of black authors, it becomes a tool for imagining um, political futures that can't be fully realized in the present. I actually really appreciated that about your book. And I've always thought about, about this kind of late mid 20th century dismissal of melodrama, sentimental novels, romance, of actually there's a way to undo this and say, this allows people to say things that are really unspeakable because they're using these conventional genres, which are supposed to be a part of the imagination of fiction, of all these things that we denigrate because political life is about real things. And political life is about imagining a different future. Absolutely. You're kind of activating this genre, you're saying in the hands of black writers, it becomes a tool to imagine a different world uh, in the ways that readers can understand. And Absolutely. Delaney is an interesting, weird sort of Afro-futurist Afro book in the late 1850s, he's writing kind of a futuristic novel and then ultimately a kind of black solidarity around the world and a kind of rebellion. That book gets revived in the 1960s for obvious reasons. People pick that back up. If we can move, it's okay. If it's okay to move to James Baldwin Johnson and maybe sort of, he's such an enormous figure, so incredibly important. Um, however, not totally, I'm not totally convinced he shows up on every college or high school reading list of American writers. I don't think so. You know, it's <laughs> regrettable. It's really regrettable. I mean, we're talking it, about the man who penned the Negro national anthem. And with his brother writes this song, which now everybody sort of knows. And then I think it's also become quite well known outside of the African-American community because it's sort of an anthem for a lot of performers. Um, he's perf performed on Broadway. He writes, he collects these anthologies, becomes a leader in the NAACP. So he's a really huge civil rights figure, but he starts with this novel. Uh, the autobiography in Ex-Colored Men, which I always found really fascinating because I probably read it like most college students and thought it was an autobiography because it's called an autobiography. Yes. <laughs> so, can we, so what is he doing in this book? He's giving us the story and he, he starts really with this incredibly ambitious preface. He says, I will show you behind the veil of race relations in America. Yeah. He's doing some really incredible radical things that constitute significant breaks with the African, but with both the American and the African American literary tradition, but more specifically the autobiographical tradition. Um, hmm. So, so on the one hand, and and writing this fictional autobiography and publishing it anonymously, he's kind of. Um, gesturing back to Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, which is a work that um, exists somewhere between, um, you know, fiction and nonfiction, right? Um, and um, and yet, on the other, he's kind of um, he's kind of breaking away with early African American autobiographies, wh where establishing one's authorship 
and and these other kind of realist techniques of um, endowing the the narrative with greater veracity. He's not doing any any of that. You know, mm-hmm. when we think about early African American autobiographies, they are experiments in realism. I mean, you know, on the frontispiece, you have the author photograph, you have the signature, you have the tagline written by himself or written by herself. So, you know, um, one's identity is really crucial to establishing not just their authorship, but, you know, adding veracity to the narrative. Um, And yet he's not he's not doing this, you know, um, he kind of, he, he erases his identity, um, and, and puts this fictional narrative out as if it is, um, nonfiction. What do you think the impact is of this book when it comes out? So he sort of says, I'm going to tell you actually what's going on. And I always thought some of the reviews are saying, this is really who's living among us that they are people who actually have passed in this really complicated way. And we have a lot of, as you said, a lot more stories than James Walton Johnson on Ella Larson, which was probably widely taught passing a lot of stories in the late nine or mid 19th century already describing this. Yes. It's yeah. not suddenly 1920, they discover passing as a thing, but the whole 19th century, you have texts constantly talking about characters who pass in or out certain categories. Absolutely. Um, so so he, he doesn't do this work in the beginning to say, this is really me. I'm authenticating myself as an African-American. He just puts this book out and said, I'm not even gonna tell you who I am. I'm just gonna let this book do the work. Yeah. Um, and, and then the story he tells um, seems to build on a, still a kind of traditional story of, we said the Benjamin Franklin, the kind of humble beginnings, kind of there's drama, he's, you know, a single mother, there's a revelation, then he's orphaned, there's difficulty, hardship, and then triumph, and then kind of realization. So it follows a certain kind of pattern that we know from other books. Yes, yes. And, and I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 go ahead. No, 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 I'm just curious what you, when you teach it, like, like how you actually introduce this book to say, this is a really strange question, I, what, I think, so we read this from the title, an ex-colored man. So what do we think this person is? Because he's only called the ex-colored man throughout the book. Yeah. So as a reader, I'm sort of thinking, we've been trained to think, okay, this is a black protagonist. This is a white protagonist. And he doesn't really give you that. He says, well, I'm just going to let you read this book. So as readers, you know, in the 19 teens or today, I think what's unsettled is the way we've been conditioned to yeah. understand the book as being written from one position. Yeah, yeah. For me, when I um, teach this book, and I just did last week, um, I'm, I'm interested in how the book destabilizes literary categories that we've become really dependent upon. In some respects, the novel's focus on race as a social construct and kind of destabilizing those categories The book is doing something very similar with literary categories, I think, too. Um, It's a very experimental work when you think about uh, its appearance in 1912. Um, You know, it is is a modernist work, 
for me, it's a work that, um, that provides this kind of crucial link um, between 19th century African-American writing and then the kind of writing that we see in the late 20th and even early 21st century. Um, so for me, I like to talk about genre and I like to talk about how the book is destabilizing racial categories. I like to talk about how the book is um, theorizing identity. You know, there are all these modalities to identity. Um, identity is a matter of ancestry and heritage. It's a matter of cultural forms like ragtime or African-American folklore. It's also something that's performative, um, you know? So, so these are the kind of issues that I like to, to talk about when I teach this novel. That's kind and of a you, lot there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a lot. I just, I want to focus on one thing. Can you say what you mean by saying it's performative? Uh, it's sort of just to break that down or open that up a bit. Yeah, I think that the, the book is like at its most radical in the, um, in the sections about the narrator and his millionaire friend and the conversations about classical music and ragtime. You know, our mm -hmm. narrator starts off in the way that many African-Americans do start off. Like you learn Anglo and European culture before you really learn anything about your own culture. So he's trained in classical music. And when he's at the club in New York City, right? And he's, he's introduced to ragtime, which is this, um, you know, popular musical form um, created by, um, you know, Scott Joplin and, um, and is a precursor to jazz, right? He decides that he's going to um, take his classical music training and, and apply that to ragtime. Um, and in that way, kind of perform a certain kind of blackness. Um, and then, you know, when he goes to Europe, he's actually in Germany with his millionaire friend and he, he hears the German musician who, is, who has taken ragtime and has turned it into classical music. And he decides, well, you know, well, maybe I should do that too. <laughs> um, and then he decides that he has to go back to the South. He has to utilize his own heritage and Negro spirituals and, and Negro folklore as a source of inspiration to, to produce a new kind of musical genre. Um, so in those conversations where the millionaire is saying, you know, music is universal, you know, it, it, it's not something that belongs to any particular race. I think that the book is playing with the notion of identity as being performative, you know, not something that's just relegated to bloodlines or heritage, but something that kind of circulates beyond Mm -hmm. um, you know, identity as this kind of identitarian thing, you know, um, music is an important component of culture and identity, but it doesn't really belong to us, you know? But it's great the way you're describing it because he's sort of examining the sort of conundrum 
at the heart of American culture, where you are coming out of a century that has pretended for quite some time all the contributions of all the people you've just mentioned, notwithstanding that this is a European tradition that is derived from Europe. We still teach American literature and we teach British literature as its antecedent, uh, pretty monolingual and sort of coming out of England, which has really no basis in how people arrived in this nation. But he's saying, well, I have to go back to discover something else. Um, so he's going, he goes back to the South and he also saying, I don't have this intuitively innately in me. I have to actually talk to these people, study my, the people where the, the background, where I come from. He comes from a small town in Georgia, I think. But yeah. he's saying this takes work. This is not given to me, just I felt to me. And then he's saying, and also just like classical music, those German musicians, they had to learn it too. They weren't born getting Mozart right. Yeah, yeah. On both sides, it is an act of actually learning and immersion. And then in the, in the, in the beginning in the clubs in, in New York, he makes a bit of money with it and they call him the professor and he can kind of mix these genres. And then he goes to Europe and he realizes, I don't want to be this person to actually be in Europe and then represent this Americanness, which I don't even really totally own. Yeah. So I think for students today, I think what you, all the questions you're raising are so germane to what we're talking about today, sort of who does culture belong to? What is appropriation? Who has a right to perform something? I mean, this, these questions have not gone away in a hundred years. No, they've, they've been amplified in recent years, I think. Yes, that's, and, and then when you talk about, the, if they've been amplified, I think why I actually found your book, sort of the epilogue so important is so, this has been a conversation for over a hundred years. So if they're so difficult to solve today, maybe we could go back to look at how someone thought about it in 1912. Yeah. And, and Johnson is really interesting, I think, because then he has this, this other career and another career and another career and another career. It's like five lives in one or eight or so <laughs> many lives. And, and there's something really open about him, I think, on the one hand, and he, he goes to you know, Latin America, South America as a consul. He speaks many languages. His mother is from the Bahamas. So there's a kind of international cosmopolitan dimension to him. Yeah. But at the same time, his life becomes very focused and showing African-American culture is an integral part of American culture. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's even a kind of performance if we think about it, right? Um, the book is so, um, amazing to me and how it anticipated a lot of the things that we're seeing in Black studies now. But this might be the first African-American novel to take up race in a global way. Like the chapters hmm. where the narrator's working in the cigar factory and he's learning Spanish. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't think of too many African-American novels before 1912 that are attempting to kind of move outside of that black white racial binary and show us a different type of racial otherness um or you know what what does it mean to be black in um in this cuban space um it's 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 really quite um quite fascinating you know it really is and and as you're saying, it opens up something that, of course, on the one hand, has been a lived reality for countless people. 
because people are not just placed into a black and white dichotomy. They live in many different ways. There's been intersectionality long before Kimberly Crenshaw sort of gave a name to this, of course, not to diminish this at all, but he's saying people are living in these complicated spaces. We simplify them. And then he takes the race question sort of at the title of the book and says, I'm just not gonna allow you to see me in one way. Yeah, yeah. Because essentially I'm just gonna go back and forth and I'm gonna give you the reasons for doing that. If you can, could you talk a little bit about sort of the, the end of the book maybe without giving a total spoiler of what happens, <laughs> but it's, I also think it's such a dramatic story and it's kind of an enviable story and he gets to go to Europe and he has this kind of patron and he makes a lot of money and he has this amazing offer a great career, but he goes back to America. Yeah. And then there's also a love story in it. And then there's a kind yeah. of lost father story in it. Very American, I think the kind of lost father, like who, are, who is my real true father? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it has this, this book, I told my students last week, this is like the best final line in all of American and African-American literature, right? Where he's lamenting the fact that he sold his birthright for a mess of pottage um, and yeah. that he chose the lesser thing. Um, what's interesting to me about that ending is that it comes um, on the hills of the narrator reflecting about a conference he had attended some years ago. And mm -hmm. when Booker T. Washington spoke, he was kind of like the headliner, you know, here's the leading race man of the 19th century. And, you know, he's, he's realizing that that's what he gave up. He gave up that opportunity to do the work of uplifting the race. Um, and for the narrator, this is this is a cultural literary kind of project. Like I, I do feel like it's couched in those terms um, at the end of the um, the book. Um, and so um, it's interesting to think about passing in relationship to loss. It reminds me of Alison Hobbs's new um, book. Um, I can't remember the title of it, but you know, when we talk about passing, we almost talk, we almost always talk about what's gained. We talk about upward mobility and we talk mm -hmm. about um, how people are able to achieve material and economic mm -hmm. success right. and wealth. But we rarely talk about what gets lost when people decide to pass. And, and the novel ends on that note, right? Like. One of the things that I think is kind of um, obliquely mentioned, one of the things that you know is lost is his contributions to African-American culture, right. right? His music, his music is lost to the race. When you, he, he attends this conference, I think Mark Twain is at this conference yes. in Washington, which is kind of, kind of nice for you because Mark Twain is in your book as well. <laughs> you kind of make a case why actually uh, Mark Twain belongs in <laughs> the African-American tradition. But he recognizes, I traded this, this possibility to have a role to shape the culture and history of my nation. But we as readers kind of are with him because he also wanted personal happiness and he fell in love and he has children now and I think there's loss, and if he had chosen the other way, it's also very solitary, it can be very lonely, yes. it takes enormous courage, 
There's a huge amount of opposition. So it's not that he would have been the celebrated Booker T. Washington, but he would have maybe put himself out there and be alone. And I think as a reader, we kind of think there's regret. Um, and the trade-off is in different categories. One is sort of cultural significance. One is personal happiness. And I think what every novel does, how do you weigh that? How do you weigh your own personal happiness? Not in a selfish way, but say, I'm going to put myself into this position yeah. to do something for, let's say, the race or for America. Yeah. But what do I get out of this? I'm not so sure he gets anything. I mean, what yeah. I love about the ending is that it doesn't really give you a resolution. No. It's not a tidy, neat ending. Um, yeah. He's just as confused and conflicted um, as he is when we meet him in the beginning of the novel. And I think that that really speaks to the existential crisis of modernity. Like identity is messy. Um, and identity is elusive. Mm -hmm. um, you know, passing doesn't give him a cohesive self. Um, and in this regard, I feel that the narrator is um, a precursor for the kinds of protagonists that we will meet in 20th and early 21st century African-American literature. Um, you know, I'm thinking about um, new black aesthetic fiction, post-black, post-soul fiction. Um, you know, I'm thinking about um, uh, Sarah Phillips by Andrea Lee, right? I'm thinking mm -hmm. about Michael Thomas's Man Gone Down or Percival Everett's work, like Erasure or I'm Not Sydney Poitier. Um, as we make our way deeper into the 20th century and into the 21st, you know, we have a plethora of Black protagonists who are conflicted and who feel racially alienated from their people. Mm -hmm. And they, um, they can't really identify with, um, with Blackness couched in terms of oppression and, um, and slavery. <laughs> right. um, so, so I think that the, the novel is, um, is, a, is a very early example of that kind of racial confusion and racial ambivalence, you know, a racial ambivalence that I think is really key to, black, con to contemporary Black writing. Can you say, I really found this, this is really important. Can you say something about these characters, these protagonists you just named, sort of what's specific about them? How do they actually, so conflicted, yes, but what, 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 when you group them in this way, who are, what do they, who are they? So I have three good examples. I'll start with Andrea Lee because um, she's a big part of my next book project. And I just finished an 8,000 word essay wow. on her for the Oxford Handbook of 20th Century American Literature. But Andrea Lee's Sarah Phillips, which um, was published in 1984, um, was just ripped apart by black critics, particularly Mary Helen Washington. Um, Andrea Lee um, is a card carrying member of the postal generation. She grew up in affluent suburban Philadelphia. Her parents, um, her father was a Baptist minister, her mother a school teacher. So her, her parents kind of fought that civil rights struggle mm -hmm. and she was the beneficiary 
uh, of it. She attended integrated, predominantly white schools and summer camps, um, and um, by all accounts, grew up really privileged. And so a work like Sarah Phillips, when it comes out, and it's all about a middle-class privileged black woman in white spaces and going to Europe and um, engaging in a number of sexual relationships with white European men um, and who feels no loyalty to the race, you know, um, who's ambivalent she's ambivalent about her relationship to mm -hmm. racial history mm -hmm. um, and to her people mm -hmm. um, and is just really, um, really ambivalent, ambivalent about her responsibility to the race. I'm also thinking of um, Trey Ellis's first novel, Platitudes, which is like about the, the plight of the blurred, the black nerd. <laughs> right. You know, um, you know, he, Trey Ellis has written um, wonderfully and beautifully about the black middle class mm -hmm. and, and black people who go to private schools where they're, you know, the only one or one of a few. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I, I, I see Johnson's book as kind of announcing um, uh, a kind of black fluidity yeah, yeah. that I don't really think we had prior to the publication of- Who is the third one? You said you had the third protagonist. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of um, Michael Thomas's 2010 book, Man Gone Down, mm. um, which I love. It's such a great book. Oh, and he, he is, making these explicit references to Invisible Man in the African-American literary tradition, but about a black man who's married to a white woman. His kids are in private school. He's a recovering alcoholic. And um, he was sexually abused as a kid. And he is a writer. He, um, he's an ABD. I don't think he ever finishes his PhD but he's trying to figure out how he's gonna come up with the money to pay tuition for his kids' private school education. And he ends up winning the money at a golf tournament, <laughs> which is like the whitest thing ever, right? Like <laughs> Tiger Woods, yeah, exactly. With the one exception, <laughs> Tiger. And you're saying these characters come out of James Weldon Johnson sort of opening up a space to say, I'm not gonna settle into any of the grooves that exist for what it means to be black in America or white in America. And I think the book also to go, to go back one more time to the book, the book certainly doesn't make you feel that passing into white society is such a great game because there's this very important chapter on a lynching yeah. Very, very important, I think, where he ultimately said, I will live in this country, but what this country requires of everyone is actually participation in this. Yeah. And there's something really shocking because it's not like, oh, I'm going to pass for white and then I'll have my career and I can sort of become, right. you know, um, Anatole Broyard or someone like that. Like, when, you know, it's like I'll have a big career and no one will ever know me. No, there's a huge price. That's right. 
And so what you're saying, this kind of, so he doesn't settle. He said the price is worth it or it's too high or I won't pay it. He said, this is just how we have to navigate these identities. And I think it, what's remarkable when you're saying 1912, he sets this up and then these books, they're not exactly well received because they still don't fit into a storyline that, that they're is- They're anomalous. They're kind of like, you know, to use Jean Andrew Jarrett's term, there are these anomalous texts. They, <laughs> You know, I think they constitute a counter tradition in African American letters. They exist on the margins, and mm -hmm. critics don't know what to make of them, black or white critics. Mm -hmm. But I want to go back to the chapter you mentioned <laughs> and, and the narrator's decision to pass. You know, in my most recent rereading of the novel, I was struck by his passivity. It doesn't really feel like a conscious decision to pass for white as much as it is, I'm just going to allow the world to take me at face value. I'm gonna allow people to think whatever they wanna think of me. Now he knows that he's going to be read as white because phenotypically he presents as white. But I read that as, the protagonist saying that I opt out of the American race game. Like, I'm not gonna play that game. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 he does the thing that I feel like we haven't been able to do in our criticism and scholarship. Like, we all acknowledge that race as essence is wrong. Like, we all, we all agree that race is the social construct, we agree that um, it's, it's, it's something that has very horrific consequences for people, but we're still very attached to it. You know, we're very, very attached to it. We're not quite ready to relinquish it because I think that we're too invested in talking about race. You know, mm -hmm. it kind of reminds me of that Walter Ben Michaels article um, about the novel autobiography of an ex-white man. <laughs> he says, you know, we have to agree that race is a social construct or race is essence. Like you have to pick one or the other, but, but you can't say race is a social construct and, and, and think that you're against racial essentialism and then keep reifying race right. when you talk about racial difference or race configured as cultural specificity or particularity. So it's like our attachment to race um, kind of belies all of the scholarly work we've done to disavow race. It's this paradox. Well, it's it's really a paradox. And I think what, I mean, I'm sort of some of the essays you've written sort of like, wh where do we end up in African-American studies or something is, there are different ways of doing it. Some of it is tactical. We have to keep on doing it. We still have to keep on shifting and sort of the curriculum is still not really inclusive, let's no. say. So I, to me, it's, that's actually an important part of work that has to be done to acknowledge also the history goes much deeper. There's African-American writers starting not just with Phyllis Wheatley and Jupiter Hammond, but that has been part of America's imagining. Toni Morrison's book, Playing in the Dark, I think shifted some things in a certain way for people not to get away with saying, well, the only writers are really Emerson, Edgar Allan Poe, and Whitman and Melville. Yeah. But you're saying something else, sort of we kind of revert to it because 
sort of there's a it sort of maybe it just allows us not to think or not sort of to sort of not do the work that James Walden Johnson was willing to do. Yeah. And Johnson is so interesting to me, and I've tried to read as much as he published, this vast amount. So I read all the editorials in New York Age, like all, wow. all the newspapers, which is fascinating. Wow. I give my students an assignment. In 1916, I think some boy writes from, uh, I think, Indiana, an African-American who says, I don't want to stand up and salute the flag because it's not my country. And he takes this little letter and he writes an editorial and he says, well, Young man, it's a really good point you're making here, and I understand what you're saying, and you're absolutely 100% wrong because this is your country. Actually, we are more of the presence of Americans than most people because everybody arrived after us. So most Americans at that point are newly arrived immigrants, so they're not American. And I make my students write about this in relation to Colin Kaepernick and say, what would James, Welch, James Weldon Johnson say? Oh, wow, that's rich. And they actually, I let them just go and say, what would he say about this today? Could someone say, I actually, and I'm not saying Colin Kaepernick saying, I'm not part of America. He sort of, he, he deconstructs it. But what I'm saying is that he's opening the space up that you're saying for these anomalous novels. And at the same time, his life becomes his commitment yeah. to the civil rights struggle. He organizes this sort of 10,000 men march in New York City, like in 1917. He's really committed to equality, to civil rights. And, you know, long before we think the civil rights movement starts, it's 1910, 1915, he's doing this. And then he does all the books he edits, the anthologies he edits in the 1920s, are trying to yeah. correct the misunderstanding that American literature doesn't have an African-American presence. Yeah, yeah. He's a very interesting figure. It, it, you know, it makes me wonder if, in some respects, this narrator is like some kind of um, future proclamation. Hmm. Like maybe, maybe the novel is an attempt for him to kind of imagine um, a black subject opting out of race. Mm -hmm. you know? um, Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, I, I don't know, but I do think the book's very experimental. Mm -hmm. I, I feel that um, there's this, um, this way that it kind of anticipates some of the reassessments of identity that come later on in the 20th century. You know, when we talk about race as being fluid, I just see so, so I see so much of that in this novel. And I think what's what's amazing, and he leaves the reader, as you said, kind of with this unresolved question to say, society is going to force you to take sides. It's on you to make these choices. And he lays them out in front of you as a reader, and you kind of close the book and think, wait, did I just read an entire narrative? And he, he starts out the book already saying, I'm going to give you a paragraph of deep regret at the very end. Yeah. So the reader is sort of given a kind of toolkit to think about race in 1912 that we are still grappling with today. We're saying it's fluid. Can you say something to sort of in closing, when you're teaching this right now and you're teaching um, during this moment in history in 2020, when Black Lives Matter has really um, shifted the conversation in our country. I'm just curious, because I've heard you, you know, on video, you've talked to other people 
from your former high school, actually, I listened to that interview, which I really found really nice. But how do you talk to students right now? And how do you yourself to sort of say, where are we in this country? Because James Weldon Johnson, in some ways, he did this work 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah. We're living in historic, I think, unprecedented times. I mean, anti-Blackness and violence inflicted on Black people is certainly nothing new. Um, but we have technology now, you know, we have technology now. Um, yeah, we had technology when Rodney King happened in 1991. You know, George Holiday captured that moment on home video and all of America and the world saw it. But the difference between that moment and now is that now because of the iPhone and all this other technology and YouTube and social media, Rodney King was not singular. It's happening every day, all day, everywhere, you know? So we can no longer dismiss this um, as something that happened in the past, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and we have to truly have the reckoning. Um, I think that we're having some important conversations but I'm not so sure that we are really changing the structures of inequality that perpetuate this kind of violence and victimization. You know, it's become, it's become really fashionable to proclaim that Black Lives Matter. After George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were murdered, I got multiple emails from various corporations telling me that they stand in solidarity with Black America. Um, well, that's a nice thing to say, but until you start to actually change um, the laws and until we start to give some kind of reparation, emotional, financial, to families who lose their sons and daughters to police brutality mm -hmm. until you address structural inequality in America, they're just empty words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're just empty words, you know? Um, so, so that is where I am at. Um, I don't think it's changed how I teach literature. I think if anything, what I have found myself doing is drawing more parallels between um, literature of the nader and our contemporary moment. Um, you know, cause we're grappling with the same stuff they were grappling with, you know? And so um, I, I point to the literature as a means of kind of thinking through um, racial violence, thinking through um, the power of, um, of imaginary writing and what that might offer us. Um, and, it, and it provides a way for me to also talk about um, the relationship between art and politics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I actually, I, uh, I agree with you that not enough has changed by some declarations. I'm kind of trying to figure out whether we are in this watershed moment because I think the backlash is still very strong, yeah, very serious, and there's a lot of reluctance, I think, to recognize things. 
For students, I think why I was so interested in your book is to go back to this moment, because I think when students see, wow, these discussions have been going on for a long time and I can actually become very informed and know that, so I teach what to the, uh, what to the slave is the 4th of July by Frederick Douglass. I taught it actually this year on before July 4th and then July 4th, we had so many protests in New York City and we had you know a curfew and all this stuff. And my students said, how did you know? And I said, I didn't know anything. I'm just teaching this text. And they literally read every single line, especially the last lines of what is wow. necessary for change. And I said, can you interpret this last paragraph in light of what's happening right now in America? But for them, I think to hear this has been going on for a very long time. And there is a tradition of African-American writers who've worked on this gives them actually some kind of strength to think, oh, so people have actually fought. They hadn't given up, especially in the time you're focused on this kind of, they actually created these amazing works at that time. I think for students that's helpful and it's not ancient history, but saying, wow, so we're supposed to, but so when they're told by, the, by our generation, my generation, well, nothing will change and it's so difficult. They're saying, wait a minute, you've been having this for 150 years? Yeah. Discussion or that, I think that's actually in a strange way for them empowering. They're saying, Really? And why was I not told about this? Why did I go through high school? Totally. You know, I'm realizing more and more that every generation has to fight for their democracy and their rights. Yeah. You know, we think that, you know, I was taught to think that the civil rights movement happened, the Civil Rights Act was passed, and we no longer had a problem <laughs> yeah. because we had these federal measures in place to ensure my right to vote, mm -hmm. to um, ensure my right to attend an integrated public school. But the reality is, is that we become complacent. And when you become complacent, it just breeds corruption and inequality. Um, and we have to remain ever vigilant. You know, we have, each generation has to um, think about democracy and they have to, they have to fight for it um, because I think it's constantly in peril. It's constantly in peril. Um, you know, it's not, it's not something that you can sit away and say, okay, well, I've got my civil rights now. So, you know, I can just achieve the American dream. You know, we have so many threats that are exerting pressure and force on us that are eroding our civil rights. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and, and here's what is really disturbing. So many of us are not being taught about civics, about political life. Um, I mean, you can't even watch the news and think that you are um, getting a fair balanced account of what's happening. You know, everything is so politicized, right? No, but I think what you're saying is that every generation to recognize that they have to fight another fight. And I think this new, this generation, they know that climate change, I think the identities that James Weldon Johnson couldn't have imagined that actually we're fighting for, which I think is really a key part that every generation will discover yet rights of people they couldn't even imagine. Absolutely. That we're fighting for like, you know, trans women of color and like the LGBTQ community. James Walton Johnson would have been a little bit lost in this space, I think. <laughs> but 
At the same time, he opens up enough to say identity is actually open-ended. Absolutely. And he opened up the Pandora's box, right? Right. And we're still, you know, coming up with new identities. I mean, even someone like Rachel, Rachel Dolezal and, um, you know, a number of um, uh, scholars of color who have been outed as being white, like, you know, I'm sure you've kind of seen some of that play out on social media. But um, I think that traditional identity categories have ceased to provide value for us, you know? Um, I don't know really, I, I mean, I don't have a good sense of what it means to be black. I mean, I don't have a good sense of what it means to be white. Um, I, I could not specify to mm -hmm. you in concrete terms what it means to be black. Um, I know what my black experience is, you know, but I think that's an important shift too, that, you know, um, when we talk about our identities, we have to resist the temptation to turn that into some kind of singular or monolithic phenomenon because it's just not. Yeah, and it, as we've seen, I think it, it can be a momentary tool to set up a field of study or something like that, but it can also become a weapon and it locks people in. So as yeah. we know, so you design a field, so wonderful, we now read these books by black authors and then so the next second, these black authors are placed in a different separate category and are no longer read as part of the canon. So in some ways it's a trap as much as an opening. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's really interesting when you're saying you can't talk about that as an essential identity for everybody. Like it's, it's gonna be so different, differentiated uh, across the country, yeah. Um, it's always changing. Liz, I really want to thank you for joining me today. This has been totally great. And now I feel like I have so many other books I want to talk to you about. <laughs> so, cool. Well, anytime. I really enjoyed talking to you. This was a lot of fun. This is really fantastic. And I wish you um, the best of luck with uh, writing your next book. I think it's called Swirl. Is that correct? Yes. 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 And, um, but I just want to give you another shout out. So um, the book is called Afro-Realisms and the Romances of Race, Rethinking Blackness in the African-American Novel. So people can get that book. Um, and it's really a kind of radical rereading of the romance and realist kind of tension. Uh, you teach at the University of Southern California, correct? Yes. You're on Zoom, I assume. So I hope uh, things are well. And uh, we do, we're recording this about 12 days before the national election. Yeah. So let's hope we'll see on the other, we'll see meet each other on the other side of this in a better place. Yes, yes, and I am on um, I am on Twitter at um, Prof Melly Mel. Um, I hope we can stay in touch. Uli, this was such a wonderful experience. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, talk to you later, Melissa. Thank you. Bye bye. Goodbye. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books.